Peter says, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what, what he is saying is, the scriptures written by man are a product of God. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for September 3rd, 2017. Today, our brother Omar brings part two of his message entitled, Our Statement of Faith. Nature can reveal the existence of God and some attributes of God. But if you want to know God, who he is, who, who is this God that made the universe? Who is this God that sustains the universe? We only have one window. It's the scriptures, because that's what he gave us. God speaks today how he speaks through his scriptures. Brother Omar details why we have a statement of faith and how it should affect our lives and our decision making. He also delves into how the Bible is the inspired God-breathed Word of God. Now he'll be reading from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. So you guys remember, I'm going through the series in our Statement of Faith. You guys know we have a Statement of Faith. Everybody read it? Everybody memorized it? Okay. Um, <laughs> we're going to go basically through each statement and hopefully sometime within the next couple of years we will complete the whole series through explaining and teaching through our statement of faith. Now if you remember last time we did like an introduction about what a statement of faith is, why do we have one, why should we have one, etc. And we got a little bit into the illustration that the Apostle Paul gave in Ephesians chapter 2, if you guys remember, he talks about God is building a holy temple, right? And there's a cornerstone in this holy temple, and that is Jesus, right? And then there's also a foundation which the Apostle Paul says is the apostles and the prophets. That's our foundation. If you guys remember, I emphasized that a foundation is only laid how many times? when you build anything. One time, right? How many foundations do you need? You have to build another one. Once the building, once the foundation is laid, do you need another foundation on top of that? You don't. So if the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of this building called the church, do we need another apostles and prophets foundation? No, we don't. Okay, good. So that's the answer to whether or not there should be apostles or prophets today. The answer is none other than the ones that have already been laid already. All right? So you don't need any more foundation in your house other than the one that you already have. All right? So we talked a little bit about that. And then and the other thing was the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul, talks about delivering something to the churches. Right? What I have received, I delivered unto you. See, the apostles and the prophets, they got their teaching, well, the apostles got their teachings from Jesus, right? They walked with Jesus, they spoke with Jesus. Later on, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, they received the, the teachings which they gave to the churches via the epistles, right? The churches, in, in turn, received that teaching, and they did what? They delivered it forward, and so forth and so forth, Fast forward 2017, you and I are here studying more or less the doctrines that were laid down 2,000 years ago. So our responsibility as a church is to do what? 
to receive the doctrines of the scriptures, to contend for them, right, to defend them, to, to guard them, and to deliver them forward for the future generations. So our number one job as a church is to receive the teachings of the scriptures, to defend them, to study them, to know what they are, and to contend for them and then deliver them forward. Okay, so that was more or less what I talked about last time. So there's our statement of faith, that whole thing there, right? We will not cover all of that today or next time or next time or the time after that or maybe in the next six months. <laughs> so what today we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning. Now, our statement of faith begins with the scriptures. So we begin, we as a church, followers of the way, the church that we are, believe that the Holy Scriptures are the inspired, inerrant Word of God, sufficient for all matters of life, faith, and doctrine. These scriptures are contained in the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament as believed by the Protestant churches and taught in the various different confessions. We reject any apocryphal books as canonical. Today, I'm going to cover the first sentence. Next time, I will cover the second or the last part. Um, reason being is there's a lot of way more detail that I thought there was, and it's probably going to be, it's going to take like three sermons to do all of this, okay? So today, we're going to do, I'm going to do an Olu, and I'm going to give you <laughs> the first sentence there, and I will explain that a little bit. So, what do we mean when we say that the Holy Scriptures are inspired and inerrant? The inspired and inerrant Word of God. I got, you guys remember a couple of months ago, or I think it was last year, we did a whole series on the scriptures. You should not have that look in your face. You should have known this. <laughs> we did a whole series on the scriptures um, where we explain a little bit on that. So some of this may sound like you've already heard about it. So um, what do we mean when the scriptures are inspired? Okay, we're going to do Second Peter. All right. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we have, uh, there's various other verses in the Bible. We're going to just focus on this one because Peter, in writing uh, his epistle, he explains to the churches, first of all, he begins by saying, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, right? He's telling them, we're not, you know, what we're teaching you is not something that we made up. They, there's, not some, there's not something that we've come up with. It's no fairy tales. But when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were wit eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when, we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him in the holy mountain. What Peter is doing here, he's recounting his eyewitness account of what is called transfiguration. You find this in the gospel, Matthew 17, right? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, takes them into a high mountain, and while they're all there together, right in front of their face, the Bible says that Jesus transfigures in front of them, and his face begins shining, and his 
uh, garments became white as light. And then when they look, they see Moses, they see Elijah, and they see Jesus, and they're talking. Jesus is talking. And then Peter says, let's, let's just build an altar to all three of you. Let's just build an altar to this guy, because this is amazing. And then they hear a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. To him you shall listen. So Peter is giving this account, listen, what we're teaching you is not made up. It's not something we came up with, right? We're teaching you something that we've seen. We're eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus Christ. We've seen him in his glory. We saw him in the mountain. But, listen to what he goes on to say. We have a word more fully confirmed. The King James says, but we have a more sure word. In other words, our account of the miracle that we saw, as great as that experience was, that's not enough. We need something more sure. And he tells them, you have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is saying, we've got something more confirmed. We have something more sure. What is that that, that we have? He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes, I got the Greek text there, from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice the three words. First word, genomai, that's the word for come. No scripture comes, that means comes into existence or comes into being or originates, right? From man's own interpretation. The Greek word there is to lose, to release. It could be used to say explain or understanding. No scripture comes into existence by a man's own loosing or releasing, right? But men spoke from God as they were born along, moved like a ship. Right? In the old days, the ship, they, have, they didn't have motors, right? What they had? They had a sail. And the wind moved the ship. So Peter says, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what, what he is saying is, the scriptures written by man are a product of God. Right? God moved these men like the wind moves the ship to write his word. All right? So... What does that mean? What's the implication? Point one. The scriptures are a divine product, though recorded by man. Okay? The scriptures are not Peter's own good ideas of what he thought was right. Right? Uh, they were not the apostles' own understandings. I'm sure these were holy men. But they were they're a product of God recorded by men. So they originate with him. They're a divine product. Second point, 
the scriptures, the inspiration applies to the scripture and not the writers. Paul, the person, was not inspired himself, right? I'm sure Peter wrote a lot of things. He probably left notes in his refrigerator asking to take out the trash or whatever, okay? Only those things which are found in our Bible and those things alone are inspired of God. That's important. Later on, you'll see there's a lot of so-called documents that are attributed to apostles that came later. Okay? Um, whether or not they're apostles, they're written by the apostles, doesn't matter. If they're not found within our canon, our Bible, they're not inspired. Because it's not the men, it's God. Right? If this is true then the scriptures reveal God. What does that mean? That means that we have only one window to know who God is. Nature can reveal the existence of God and some attributes of God, but if you want to know God, who He is, who, who is this God that made the universe, who is this God that sustains the universe, we only have one window the scriptures, because that's what he gave us. God speaks today how? He speaks through his scriptures. How do I know who God is? How, why God does what he does? What type of God do I worship? You know it only through the scriptures. That's his revelation. That's what he wanted to tell us. When you read your Bibles and you go to Numbers, isn't Numbers entertaining? You ever read Numbers? Right? You get to those like nine chapters that are like, and John is the son of Mike, who's the son of this and that, this, and you skipping through it, <laughs> pretending you're reading it like you're holy. Well, all of that, all of that is inspired. All of that is there because God wanted you to know that Lathan gave birth to whatever the name was. Who gave, that's, that's why all is there, right? It's inspired by God. He inspired that. They reveal his character, his nature, and who he is, right? So, first implication, if this is a product, if the scriptures come from God, if the scriptures are a product of God, if God inspired it, therefore, they must be perfect. It must be Inerrant, that means without error. Okay? They must be perfect. Psalms 19, the ordinances of the Lord are what? True and righteous all together. Okay? The law of the Lord, Psalms 19, verse 7, one of my favorites. The law of the Lord is perfect, that is blameless, restoring the soul. Your righteousness is everlasting. Your law is true. The commandments are true. The sum of your word is truth. There's no lie in it, right? And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word is perfect. Why? It came from him, right? He used imperfect fallible human beings to produce a perfect, infallible word. Now, 
Can I talk about my problem? I have a problem. There are some groups of people, very popular, very well-known, nice, polite, pious-sounding men, who believe in a doctrine, and a lot of these men, unfortunately, come from my circle, which is the Wesleyan peoples. They hold to a doctrine called partial inerrancy. Let me tell you how this sounds like. I didn't put it up there because I want you to, to hear how this sounds like. This is an official statement from a particular denomination, a Wesleyan denomination. This is what they believe. They say, and I quote, We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testament given by divine inspiration. Inherently revealing the will of God concerning us and all our things necessary to our salvation. So whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. Sounds nice, right? What does that mean? They mean that the scripture is inerrant only in matters of salvation. That's what they believe. Not science, not history, not biology, only in matters of salvation. See, they hold that when God inspired his word, his intent was to get you saved. God wasn't trying to prove science. The Bible is not a science book, they'll say, right? The Bible is not a history book, they'll say, right? So the Bible is a book about salvation. So it's perfect, infallible, when it comes to this, but not other things, what does that look like? Moses, take Moses for example. Moses was not a scientist, right? Wasn't a scientist, not a biologist, right? So when God wanted to give Moses an account of creation, obviously God is not going to be concerned to prove scientific ways in which he, proved he created the world. And of course, Moses did not believe or understood evolutionary theory. Therefore, God gave Moses an account of the creation of the world that it was something that he could understand. But we today have more knowledge of science, and therefore we understand the world was created through evolutionary means. So while, yes, God created the world, he may not necessarily create it the way that Genesis 1 and 2 says he did. Why? Because the Bible is only inerrant in matters of salvation. See how that looks like? There's a problem with that. Number one, evolutionary, evolutionary theory is not science. It's religion, number one. Number two, who determines what's inerrant and what's not? We do, right? Because what we did before evolutionary theory came about, what we didn't know about it, okay. So as time goes by and we learn more things, right? So we become the judge of the Bible rather than the Bible becoming the judge of us. That's a problem. That's why you see some churches having new newer ideas of human sexuality and affirming things that they wouldn't affirm before. Why? Partial inerrancy. A lot of churches 
Bonifile. In fact, the statement of faith that I just read to you, I can say this publicly because it's a public statement, came from the Church of Nazarene. It's a Wesleyan denomination. Their public article of faith. They claim the Father Wesley taught that, that guy over there. Apparently they had glasses back in the day. <laughs> so let's see what Father Wesley taught about this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Consequently, all scripture is infallibly true. Infallibly true. How much of scripture, Mr. Wesley? We know all scripture is given by inspiration of God. is therefore true and right concerning all things. How many things? Everything that the scripture proclaims needs to be true. Science may say, well, we don't agree with that. Too bad. Give us some time. And they will find out some more stuff, which will eventually will correspond with what the Bible teaches. It's happened, all, it's happened over and over again throughout history. Right? If he is a Christian, Mr. Wesley says, he betrays his own cause by averring that the scripture is not given by inspiration of God, but the writers of it were sometimes left to themselves and consequently made some mistake. Nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there is one falsehood in that book, it did not come from God. That's the teaching of the historical church going all the way back to the early church fathers. That's what they held to. Not this. This is new. This is bad. We in this church hold that the Bible is an errant fully in all that it affirms. We are not concerned whether it, what it affirms matches with science. If some of it does, fine. Science is human beings looking through a telescope or doing some investigations and writing it down. We're fallible human beings. We're concerned about what the Bible teaches concerning what it says. And, and, and we believe that everything that it teaches is fully inspired, therefore is narrant. It has no mistakes. It has no errors whatsoever. Second implication. If this is true, the Bible comes from God. The Bible is perfect in all matters of faith and doctrine, then it's authoritative over our lives. The Bible has authority over our lives. It rules our life, our faith, and our doctrine. It rules it. That means deviation from it is disobedience, right? Let me give you an example. It took me a while to work my way up, to bring this up, but it has authority over our finances. Let's talk about finances. What does it mean for the Bible to have authority over our lives? Here's a statement of fact. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's a statement of fact. How many of us take that into consideration when we are going to buy something? Buy a car? Right? Or get a credit card. Do we take that into consideration? I haven't <laughs> throughout my life. Why does the Bible say that? What is the Bible trying to say? I mean, look, look at um, 
Statistically, what's the number one cause for divorce? Money. Right? You want to know why? Car payments, credit card payments, student loans, right? Mortgages, right? What does the Bible say? The rich rules over the poor, the borrowers is laid to the lender. That is a principle of economics. Apostle Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Oh, no one anything. How do you know a nation is blessed? Do not withhold good from those who is due what is in your power to do it. That means what? If you owe, you pay. As soon as you can. My, my, my grandparents, I guess the whole generation was like that. They thought of a mortgage like a disease. And as soon as they got it, they wanted to get rid of it. My, my grandmother left my father a house. Very ghetto-looking, shack-looking, wooded home. But she paid for it. As soon as she got it, she did whatever she could to pay for it. All of my grandparents did that. Why? Because the borrower is a slave of the lender. You know how much debt our churches are in this country? The world looks at our big buildings and they say, why do they always ask for money? Look at their big buildings. Why don't they give more? Because we're paying. That's why. How, how, when is the nation blessed? Deuteronomy 28. The world will open his good treasury, the heavens, to give you rain in your land and season to bless all your works of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations and you shall not borrow. You know what's the biggest creditor in the world? You know what nation borrows more than any other nation? You're living in it. You see what debt does to countries? Eats them alive. Takes away everything. Swallows them up. Why? Because we're disobeying. That's what it means for the Bible to rule over our lives. That's what it means for the Bible to rule over a nation. I remember we when I got married, my wife, my lovely wife, she will hopefully not listen to this. She's like, you know, I got some debt. After we got married. I was like, how much debt you got? About $26,000. So first of all, this is one of those things that should have been brought up before marriage. Number <laughs> um, one, that would have definitely be taken into consideration. <laughs> And number two, we went through this period where, um, you know, we, were, we would pray, God, we need more money, we need more money, we need more money. And God never answered. Want to know why? Because God is probably in heaven looking at us like, no. You, you're borrowing, you're, you're, using, you're doing all these things. What, what am I going to give you more money for? So we had a... By God's grace, emphasizing the word grace, we managed to pay it off. It took us forever and a lot of sacrifices, but we managed to pay it off because it was eating up, particularly in my wife's life. It was eating her up. She couldn't sleep. She would cry for, for hours. And I told her, we're, we're never, we're, we need to get rid of this. It's eating us up. 
That's how we were supposed to live. As Christians, when it comes to finances and economics, we have a book that tells us how to live. And when we make decisions, we have a book that gives us principles on how to make those decisions. Simple as that. That's what it means for the Bible to rule your life. I picked this one because this was probably going to be the hardest for all of us. <laughs> this is what sanctification looks like. It's not just going to the movies. It's also this. How do we handle the resource that God gave us? God gives us the ability to work that we exchange for money. How are we using it? How do we make these decisions? How much debt do we have? What are we doing to pay it off as soon as we can? So we are no longer slaves, Paul says. You're no longer a slave, Paul says. Are we? What about the nations in which we live? Do they see us living that way? Or do they see us living like they live Creating debt that is slaving us. Look at what debt did to Puerto Rico, where I was born. Look at what it did to Greece. Look at what it will do to this country. We're violating the scriptures. So when it comes to finances, the Bible rules over our finances. And we should live in obedience to it. Second, second thing. All right, we're done with the conviction. <laughs> it guides our faith, our sanctification, our prayer life, our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. The Bible should guide our faith, our prayer life, our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's John 17, 17. God's word is truth. How are we sanctified? We're sanctified by the word. We want to be sanctified people, we got to be in the word a lot. We got to be in the word a lot. Reading it, studying, trying to understand it, listening to it, asking questions to people. We on Facebook. <laughs> we can interact with people. I mean, we live in the perfect time for this. I mean, Back in the days, for me to prepare a sermon like this, I needed about 14 books. I'd open them and, you know, do this thing and find quotes and go to the scriptures. Now we can do all of that on that little thing right there. We should have, of all peoples, no excuse to be in God's word, to be sanctified by his truth. Psalms 119, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I was going to put the whole Psalms 119, but I didn't think it was practical. And we would have been here a little longer than 40 minutes. Okay. Joshua chapter 1. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You will meditate on it day and night. You guys are looking at me like, oh, we've heard this a million times here in Followers of the Way. But the implications of this is, for example, like I talked about our finances, right? 
when we meditate in God's word, then we get an idea of what he expects of us. Financially, marriage, raising children, etc. It has all these principles in it that we need to understand as a people and as a church. So the Bible needs to guide our faith, our sanctification, our prayer life, our day-to-day walk with the Lord. There you go. And it must, capital, capitalized, it must guide our doctrine. It's very important. Um, I can't even tell you how many times I have people say, well, you know, doctrine is all right, but what matters is that you love Jesus. Okay. First of all, Jesus is a doctrine. He's deity, right? He's the son of, he's God, he's part of the Trinity. All that is doctrine, number one. And number two, doctrine is important for us as a church. It's what rules us, it's what guides us, it's the reason that we do what we do. The Apostle Paul said, here's, here's the verse, All scriptures breathe out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Doctrine is important. It's the number one thing. Everything that we do should be supported by doctrine. As a church, we cannot lose sight of that. We cannot um, put doctrine aside. Now, I've been in churches where people say, um, um, you, know, you know, we believe in Jesus, this and that. And, but, but, you know, if, if you want to find out more about that, you can join our seminary or whatever, I'm like, but you're in the pulpit. What are you talking about? i got to now pay to get doctrine? What are you giving me then? Right? This, this is what comes out from our pulpit. This is our practice. This is our life. Doctrine, which is why we're doing this whole thing in our statement of faith. And that's why we're beginning with the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Some translations say doctrine. Like I've said before, we need to be a teachy heavy church. That is not a word, teachy, but we'll go with it. We need to be a teachy heavy church. We need to be a church that teaches doctrine to our people so our people can therefore pass it forward. It's important that we do this. Now, just to end, I'll say this. This is our statement of faith, right? This is what we're saying publicly to the whole world. This is what we believe. Which means that if we're telling the world this is what we believe, we're also saying this is what we're going to practice as a church. Because once you make a statement publicly, you can hold accountable to it. I see people on Facebook, they post things, and then you reply, say, well, you know, I don't know why you shouldn't judge. It's like, well, don't post it. You understand? If you go on Facebook and you put something there, right, then I could reply to you. (laughs) Otherwise, don't post it, right? So we're making a public statement. This is what we believe. We believe these things. We can be held accountable, and we're saying that we're going to practice, and then we're going to, as a church, live them, or try, perfectly as it may be, to live it. This is going to be our life. This is who we are. This is our identity.
That's what we're saying. That's what it means when we have a statement. That's why it's called a statement of faith. We're making a statement that this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is where we stand. So always keep in mind that our statement of faith is not something we put on the website just to get that there and then we can come over here and then do our thing. No, when we put that there, we're saying that's, based, that's the thing that we're going to be doing is that. It's these things that we believe. So it's not a thing that we put in the back. It's the thing we have to put in the front. Okay? Because we live in times where that's typically how it goes. These things just go on the back burner. We got it out of the way. Let's move forward. You don't get it out of the way. It needs to be in the front. So as a church, our statement of faith is what we believe, what we will stand in, you know, stand on, and what we will preach and practice. Now, that being said, our statement of faith is not inspired, right? It's not perfect. Only God's word is. And our statement of faith will only be authoritative as long as it lines and is guided by scripture. No document produced by a man outside of the scriptures is authoritative over you and over your conscience. Okay? Only God's word. Our statement of faith is simply stating some facts that we believe the Bible teaches. And only in so far as that, it has any authority. Pastor Bolden has no authority over our lives, right? If you leave this church, you're not going to be damned. Only insofar as he preaches the scriptures, that's his authority. His authority is the authority God gave him in the scriptures as the pastor and the shepherd of this church. Him in and of itself is like you and me. That goes with any pastor. That goes with any man. That's why any man can be questioned. You can, you can come over here and say, like, I don't think what you're saying is right. Fine, let's go to the scriptures, right? They did that with the Apostle Paul, and he was an apostle. He went to Thessalonica. He's preaching to them, and the guys are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, pull the Bible. What, what, is, what is this guy saying? Paul didn't go, wait, hold up. I'm the apostle. You don't question me. Why are you dividing the church? No. He didn't say that. You know what he said? These guys are good. See, they're checking everything I'm saying with his word, with, with God's word. These guys are good. That's, that's the example that we need to follow, right? So as a church, our statement of faith is the statement that we made, but it's only authoritative insofar as it lines up with the word of God. We're making a statement that says these things we believe the Bible teaches, all right? So... I wrote it here. Oh, this sounds much better. Pastor Bolden's responsibility as the pastors, the teachers, and leaders, and we have responsibility to receive and learn God's word and put it into practice in whatever gifts the Lord has given us. Sounds so much better. So, as we go through this statement of faith, as we teach through it, one of the things that, that I guess you could call it a concern, the fact that it's so easy for us I mean, myself included, to look at something like that because it's long and sometimes it's very detailed and sometimes it's kind of boring. To think of it as, oh, okay, yeah, whatever, right? Yeah, we, yeah that's good. Yeah, okay, Jesus is Lord. He died for our sins, right? 
we've heard that so many times in this culture. I mean, you've heard that all your life. Jesus died for my sins. I accept him as my Savior. I go to heaven. Okay, fine. But we, we lose sight of the fact that that thing is the heart of what we believe. And these little statements that we're making are the sum of our faith. And therefore, they're important. They're, it's what separates us from other religions. Every other religion is the same. You work, you try to be good, you get balanced out at the end, and if it balances out right, you go to some paradise place. We believe that God of the universe became a baby, like baby Eden. That's how Jesus was. There was a time in Jesus' life that he was like baby Eden. And then he grew up to be a man. And he took upon himself the sins of the whole world. And on that cross, he died to pardon us from our sins. Our God did that for us. You see what I'm saying? Nobody could have thought that up. Nobody could have thought that up. That is, this, that's who we are. That's the sum of our beliefs. That's why we're saved. That's why we're not slave to our sin. That's why we do that the things that we do. That's why we have a hope of eternal life. Simply because these very nice statements that we put on there, that is our faith. That's who we are. That's, that's what we believe is the truth. So when we go through these things, we have to realize this, this is not only a statement of what we believe, but also contained therein is also who we are. And our, and our statement of faith is pretty general. This is not like we don't have distinctives and stuff like that. It's pretty general. This is what God's people have always believed. This is what made his church. This is the building that he built. So it is important for us. Pastor Bolden will testify how a lot of this research you do to prepare these sermons are very long-winded. <laughs> and you're going through like research and research and research. And sometimes I forget. Sometimes it's like I'm doing a research paper, right? And then I have to catch myself. It's like, no, this is the faith that I believe. This is not a research paper. This is the faith that I believe in. This is what saved me. This is what has me on my way to eternal life, <laughs> right? It's not just some research paper I'm doing to get this through today and then, you know, no, this is, the, this is my eternal life here. So as a church, we should have that same mentality. That these things are the things that we believe and we hold to dearly as a church. So with that being said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the men, Lord, that came before us, Lord, that, that translated, Lord, that copied, Lord, that, that um, appreciated your word, Lord, like if it was life, because it is life, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your church, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the scriptures and the doctrine you've taught us, Lord. And we pray that we always, as a church, that we may always, Lord, Hold dear those things that you've taught us, Lord, that we learn how to defend them, Lord, that we learn how to contend for them, Lord, and more importantly, that as a church, that we may learn how to deliver it um, forward to those that need it, Lord. We thank you for everybody here, Lord, and we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.